0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. I think I'm seeing the same athletes today as I saw four years ago running a minute and a half faster it's almost an athletics equivalent of the of the me too movement and they're not reacting like this because of carnitine and a testosterone experiment where they're going to test various amounts of testosterone on salazar's sons said that salazar prioritizes performance well beyond the health of his athletes it's
1: been called the craziest week in athletics well that's what we're calling it here at the science of sport podcast an amazing week of both good and bad stuff in the world of track and field and we're going to be wrapping up a little bit of the World Athletics Championships, which is happening in Doha at the moment, but also talking a little bit about the uh, run by Kenenisa Bikile in Berlin uh, just uh, just over five days ago, and of course the big story that's broken uh, in athletics this week, of course, is the case of Alberto Salazar. And we've had quite a few requests from our Twitter followers and all of those that uh, interact with us on Twitter to do a podcast on this, and uh, we'll be doing a little bit of analysis first of all, what the case involves, and uh, all the all the different sentiments that have come away from that particular um incident. So there's lots to talk about in this podcast. Um let's start off with the good stuff though. And uh, Ross, um thanks so much for joining us again. Of course Professor Tucker, my regular co-host on this show. Let's start off with the good stuff. Pekin and Lisa be is run in Berlin 20140 um 41. Um his uh, it's second fastest time in history. Not bad for a 37 year old.
0: Yeah not bad for anyone I suppose because you know that world record is two oh one thirty nine. So the context of 201.41 is that it's two seconds over 42 kilometers slower than the world record. Yeah, And you'll recall that when the world record was 202.57, Bekele ran 203.03. So cumulatively, he's run twice in Berlin and missed the world record by a total of eight seconds. <laughs> so, And then you think, well, surely you can find two seconds somewhere. And I don't know how many people watched that race, but it was it was quite remarkable and surprising because I don't think – anyone expected a time that would actually challenge a world record that a year ago people were saying was untouchable. Yeah. Um, but we're clearly in a new generation or a new era of marathon running and I think there's, a, there's an important conversation that needs to be had around what's driving that now because when you go to the world all-time lists and you look at course records, you look at national records, they are falling at a rate that you would not have predicted and yeah. they have one thing in common, we'll get to that. But yeah, the the performance was amazing because he went through halfway slightly slower than Kipchoge in his world record. Kipchoge ran a massive negative split in 2018. He finished in 60-33. So watching it, I thought, well, that's pretty aggressive. They're doing exactly what they said they'd do, but it's likely to just not fizzle out, but a mid-202 looks good. And then he got dropped. Uh, The youngster, Legese, actually put in an almighty surge at 30k, 25-30k. Ran a 1409 segment and Bekele was gapped. And it looked like, here we go, same old story. That's right. And I was tracking the splits at the time. And when that 1409 came up, I remember thinking, well, Bekele's now conceded 13 seconds. And so he actually hasn't slowed down. This is only, this damage you've seen here is exclusively from one guy who's made an incredible move at the front. So if Bekele can just hang on to this, maybe he can still catch up. But then he sped up. Yeah. And so Bekele, I, remember, I drew this graph. People can find it on my, on my Twitter account, on the, on the feed from a week ago. And he gets progressively faster and faster by more or less the same. And it's just perfectly straight line. And he runs, I think, 14.20, 14.15. And suddenly at 40Ks, he's two seconds under world record pace. Yeah. Now it's on. But... Oh, was he under at one point? He was I didn't seconds, realize he was ever under. He was two seconds quicker with two Ks to go. And the difference eventually is that uh, Kipchoge finished four seconds faster with the final 2.195 and that made, the, that made the difference. So he was actually on course to break that world record at 40Ks and no one really realized it because, yeah. it, was, because it was so unexpected. I think what was, what was really um, surprising
1: about it is everybody was watching this race and when you normally see the Kipchoge train going, it's all about pace setters and they've set a certain time, they go through certain splits, but this was a proper race. And I actually remember tweeting it on my Twitter feed saying, thank goodness, it was a world record, but in fact, it was a proper race and a world record that was almost, well, no, I'm not saying it was a world record, but it was a very fast time in a race situation rather than just a paced world record, which, we, which we've seen from Kipchoge in the last couple of years.
0: Uh, you mean Bekele's one now? Yes, it was, yeah. it was more of a race than it was just a paced event. Yeah, Kipchoge was on his own from like 25K, so he ran the last 17 as a time trial, Yeah, which probably tells you that he did have a bit more in the, in the tank. Um, looking at it now, uh, Legesse goes 1421, 1409 from 25 to 35Ks. Unbelievably quick 10. And that's what creates oh. the gap. But Bekele, meanwhile, has gone from 20 to 25, 1432. 14.25, 14.20, 14.15. And then he runs the last two at 14.05 pace. Yeah. Problem is Kipchoge ran at 13.58 pace and that did for him. So like unbelievable comeback because Bekele gets written off. Yeah. I mean, the race itself was a microcosm of Bekele's career. Aggressive, looking good, gapped, uh, disappointing. Maybe next time, actually there he comes back. That's kind of how the last four or five years have gone for him. Yeah. But at 37, to be running like that, it's yeah it's remarkable and yeah. I, again Lagasse in second is running sub203 yeah and it uh, and was almost who's a for, almost forgotten man exactly <laughs> I mean forgotten at the start line and then prominent because he's gapped the greatest of all time and then forgotten at the finish but he's still in the top five in history yeah. so it, yeah. yeah it was it was an unbelievable
1: race so let's talk about I mean we're obviously going to be doing a separate pod on this but there is one common denominator with all of these performances that we've seen over the last year or so. And that is the Nike shoe um, that we've talked a little bit about in in past podcasts. There is some controversy about it. There's people saying it should be banned because essentially it is proven to be an advantage. There are those that say that, you know, every shoe that you wear is an advantage to some extent. Uh, Just give us a bit of a pricey about where the shoe sits in your mind as a sports scientist and, and, is it the determining factor now
0: or, or are there lots of other things? I think I'll, the, the, to the last question, I think that it is the determining factor now because I think that it it gives athletes an advantage that is large enough. I, I can't put a finger on what that number is, but I think that it's large enough that it distorts our understanding of whether we're seeing performance integrity. Yeah. Um, and as you say, we'll do a whole podcast of this in the lead up to the Sub 2 attempt in Vienna because it's it's – in my opinion central to that. Yeah. But here's the problem. When you see a guy run 2:03 in a marathon, unbelievable. Physiologically constrained performance. Because you ask why did he not go quicker? And the reason he doesn't go quicker is because his physiology limits him. He can't get sufficient oxygen and energy to the muscles to power that performance for that long. Yeah. So there's a there's a ceiling that is imposed by physiology. I think that what the shoe is doing is allowing the athlete to sidestep those physiological limits. And the end result is that the same physiological input is producing a faster performance. Yeah. Now, that's not the case for other shoes. It could be for some, to small degrees. But what the lab testing on this particular shoe, the Vaporfly, initially 4%, now it's called Next% percent because they think they've made it even better. <laughs> um, the 4% was tested, admittedly funded by Nike. so take what you want from conflicts of interest. And they put a bunch of guys in a lab and they were reasonably good runners, not Kipchoge, Bekele level. And they measure oxygen consumption as a way to work out how much energy is used to run a certain speed. And on average, you use 4% less energy to run three minutes a K, whatever speed they test. They tested it at three different speeds. Now, if you can run the same speed using less energy and energy was the thing that limited you, then you can run with the same energy at a faster speed. That's logical, I hope. Yeah. 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 Not necessarily in a one to one relationship. So, a 4% drop in oxygen and energy doesn't translate to a 4% faster speed. It's a little bit less than that for the top guys. Yeah. But in theory, 2.6% is what they think it's worth. A 4% oxygen saving translates to 2.6% performance benefits. Which is a huge performance benefit at that level of the sport. Well, at any level. Because over a two-hour free marathon, 2.6% is three minutes. (laughs) Now, I don't think that the shoe is worth that much. I think there's a little bit of marketing as well. Yeah. But two things for me is, number one, that initial study on the shoe was then not not, uh, precisely replicated, but it was subsequently followed up by other research. No study has yet found an athlete who doesn't respond to that shoe. Yeah. So in other words, there's no non-responders. And that's unique because everything else, whether it's creatine that you take as a powder, whether it's a different shoe for the Adidas boost, for example, in the past, they found this one percent increase in economy or improvement, but there were responders and non-responders. There are none to this shoe. Yeah. So I think the effect is real. And I think the effect is large enough that I don't know what I'm watching. Because if the theoretical advantage is 2.6, then even if you go one third of that, you're at 0.9, yeah. And a 0.9% benefit is one minute, yeah. So take Kipchoge, take Bekele, take Legesse, and add a minute to their times. It's the same as 2014, 2015. Sure. So what we've seen is a is a is a minute to a minute and a half improvement in times, created by nothing other than distorting that relationship between input and output. Yeah. So I think I'm seeing the same athletes today, as I saw four years ago, running a minute and a half faster. Yeah. And I don't, how do I interpret that? Because people come and they say, oh, but Roger Bannister ran on the cinder tracks. Who cares about Bannister? That was 1954. Nobody has ever debated whether Bannister or Al is going to win in a race. Yeah. It's like Federer versus Laver. Who cares? Maybe if we have 10 beers, we can have that debate. It's a stupid debate I, I, to me. I suppose
1: the thing is that people go that any kind of technology that that, um, that is out there is going to be used to the, an advantage of the athlete. So whether you're wearing a pair of adidas ultra boost shoes for instance that supposedly gives some sort of energy turn back to the athlete there is some advantage it's better than running in a shoe that doesn't have that Uh, theoretically if a shoe is more comfortable if the lacing system is better if it's more durable (coughs) if it has more grip on the sole it's better than barefoot so to what extent and this is why this debate and this is why we're going to be looking at a podcast on this a bit later on but to what extent is an advantage an
0: advantage in terms of technology like a shoe (laughs) so that's a philosophical question and i promise you Please see my laptop here. Please see my phone and my sophisticated. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not living in some cave, dark ages by candlelight. I'm not opposed to technology. Yeah. But what bothers me is that of all the sports, running is in theory the one where you're matching physiology against physiology. Yeah. And I want to see the best runner. The guy who's got the physiological capacity, the running economy, the VO2 max, the efficiency, the threshold, the muscle, tendon, whatever it is, take your pick of what determines that performance. It's lots of things. But I want to see that guy win in a a race today. I don't care about Jim Peters running 215 versus Kipchoge running 201. I care about Kipchoge against his contemporaries. Yeah. And when we start talking about world records, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Now again, 2.15, we've moved on so far from that period that it's actually not even a direct comparison. Nobody is writing the headline, Bekele 14 minutes faster than, than, than Jim Peters. No one cares. Yeah. But they do care that Bekele is a minute and a half faster than Kemeto from four years back. Because yeah. that's, gen- that's within one generation. So is that technology available to all? And does it have a large enough difference in those people who have access to it, that it actually distorts the outcome of the result. Swimsuits did that. But I mean, all, all, all the
1: athletes have access to that shoe. I mean, they might not be sponsored by Nike, but I mean, to be honest with you, if that's their decision, whether they want to be sponsored by an alternative brand. So if everybody, you, you can buy those shoes freely, anybody can buy that, that shoe now. So is that not the determinant? So if everybody can buy that shoe and it's freely available, surely then everybody should run in it and everybody should be equal
0: uh again philosophically and in theory <laughs> the the shoe is not freely available that the top elites are using so they're customizing it and tuning it and optimizing it for the guys so they warm up in the commercially available shoe and then they change over to something else that was revealed at the london marathon so there's a bit of discussion about that it's actually engineering per athlete now whether that so, makes so that you're a- saying individual shoes are different from the stock one you can buy potentially online. I'm saying, yeah, is that, is that no one else can get that shoe that those guys are racing in. Okay. So then in that regard, that argument is almost moot. But even if you, even if you could, I still, it still wouldn't sit well with me because, because there's a commercial model that underpins the sport. Yeah. And if everyone does that, I mean, prior to the 2008 Olympics, when it became apparent that um, the swimsuit, the LZR racer, was so effective athletes who were sponsored by other companies it. Their, yeah. their own suits. They said, sorry, guys, this is my life's work at the Olympic Games. I can't take the risk. And so then those sponsors take a hit. And And in this regard, let's be very clear, Nike have made a breakthrough, which other companies had been looking for. So... Over a decade, 15 years ago now maybe, other companies have tried to put a carbon fiber plate in a shoe to return energy and so forth and do exactly what's been done, and they couldn't get it right. Yeah. We'll discuss why in our in our specific podcast. But um, the, the – the, so the breakthrough is a technological one, and it's actually then put Nike's rivals behind it because that's exactly what's happening at the Dubai Marathon. I can't remember if it was this year or last. One of the guys was sponsored by he ran in in a Nike shoe, and tried to paint the Adidas logo over his shoe. So he had this, <laughs> he had this like drawn in pen or paint or something, three stripes over the swoosh, because that's what they'll do. Now, so I don't. So that's a commercial argument. I'm not a big fan of uh, stopping people from like progressing something based on innovation. But again, I want to watch sport for its. Physiolo- well not any sport but running in specific for its physiological purity and that's a <laughs> purity with a quotation marks because we'll get to why maybe it's not so pure in a moment but but this this shoe for me undermines the integrity of it and they should have they should have had a policy that just limits the addition of midsole devices yeah. and limits the stack height of the shoe because yeah. then you can't do what they're doing now they're arguing that it's the foam that's returning the energy and that the carbon fiber plate helps with what they're calling geometry. Their initial patent was all about carbon fiber spring. I think they've probably discovered for themselves that it's not a spring. But I just think the regulation of this is so easy. Yeah, and it has changed marathon running. So people say greatest runners in history, Kipchoge and Bekele. Well, yeah, but yeah, how? I don't know how to contextualize what I'm watching. Well, it is certainly a very interesting
1: uh, subject, and we're going to be focusing on, a, on that particular issue around the Sub Two Hour Marathon uh, Challenge later on, in a couple of weeks' time, actually, from now. So we'll be discussing that in more detail, but. The big story this week, and uh, I think to some extent, and maybe Ross, you'll agree with me on this. This is kind of the Lance Armstrong of athletics. The biggest story that I think in doping, and we talked about the Chinese in the early '90s and all those sort of things. But you know, since then, this is probably one of the being the, one of the biggest stories in athletics. Alberto Salazar, the great uh, American marathon runner and now coach of the Nike Oregon Project, uh, banned for four years by Usada um, for a variety of different um, uh, transgressions, and we'll get into some of the details on those. But it's a it's a story that has rocked athletics and right in the middle of the world championships because the world championships themselves, a lot of those athletes that have been participating are under his under his care. Um, some athletes have been reacting very positively to the news that finally the truth is out. Other athletes have defended him. And it's been quite, a, in a way, polarizing. We see Paula Radcliffe almost, almost defending him, although there is obviously another reason for her doing that because she is connected to him um, via various people. But um, it is a very emotive one because even now Nike are defending him but the evidence seems fairly clear.
0: Yeah but Nike has to defend him because if they didn't they'd be confessing guilt because it's really important to appreciate that by this this verdict implicates Nike in at least knowing about what was being done. So there is in the USADA verdict there is an email exchange between the CEO not not head of running, head of sponsorship, athlete liaison, the CEO And the doctor, who's also been found guilty of doping violations in this arbitration process and Salazar discussing one of the things that he's been sanctioned for, namely the testosterone experiment. So my read of that is that if Nike were to abandon him, it would be a confession of guilt, in a sense, or an admission at least, that they knew and didn't intervene. So everyone has to fight together. It's all, you know, stand as one kind of thing divided we fall and united we stand divided we fall kind of thing. So so that doesn't surprise me too much. Um, I think there are some bigger questions about the corporate factors driving this. I was listening to the Let's Run podcast and they made a really good point that Salazar has been flying close to the wind or too close to the sun for years, years. And why was he doing that he was enabled to do that by the corporate culture and the money and the resources that Nike provided. So I don't think that one can divorce those two things. And subsequently, I have seen, and I think one of the most interesting things that will happen as a result of this, is that media and athletes will now find a voice that they previously were holding back. So for example, uh, I just want to read you what Nick Willis tweeted. And Nick Willis is an Olympic medalist. He's one of the great runners. He, he comes across to me as a guy who has unbelievable integrity. And he posts the following in the aftermath of the decision. He says, uh, Justice, I'm tired of having to hide my thoughts. The charade is finally over. Our sport will be much better off with Alberto gone. I mean, how strong is that? Yeah. I'm a current guy running. And, w- and for me, what's telling is I'm tired of having to hide my thoughts. Yeah. So, so I've had I've had thoughts, and I've had to suppress them. And now I don't need to anymore. And how many other athletes might that be? There might be dozens who now say in almost it's almost an athletics equivalent of the of the Me Too movement. Now suddenly you might start getting people. Lauren Fleshman was one of the people who has been named going back to 2015 as a person with Salazar. I think she was the one who told of how he would make them run up and down stairs to get out of breath and then go for an asthma test so that they'd fail it in order to get asthma meds. yeah. And she posted a very thoughtful, I thought, uh, thread on Twitter about we need to ask questions around the culture that enables this, that nobody at any point says no. Because the truth is, if anyone, Nike, UK athletics has been coming under major fire for Letting their prized asset Mo Farah go to this guy while he was under investigation—if anyone was genuinely anti-doping, zero tolerance, this would never have come to this. Yeah, and that's the reality. So I, I, I think that for me, I'm like I'm like Willis, also tired of having to hold back because you know, uh, 15, 12, 15 years ago, I met with journalists. I'm not going to name exactly who they were and started discussing the stuff that has only now come out this week officially. And there is so much more of it. This is tip of the iceberg stuff. Nick Willis isn't tired of having to hide his thoughts and saying the charade is over because of a a carnitine and a testosterone experiment that, that Salazar did. There's more to this, much more. So I've just got a clip up here,
1: and for those of you watching us live on YouTube at the moment, you'll be able to see on our screen uh, an interview that's on Twitter from uh, was it what's the guy's name who actually tweeted
0: it? It says – Carhill Carl Carhill Who, by the way, wrote also – like because, you know, you we I'm, I'm, you don't do it because you're a media, but I often <laughs> criticize the media for how they softly handle these guys. When they do this sort of stuff, like Carhill, you've got to give him some props. You've got to say, well done, because yeah. he writes a brilliant piece. And I want to read a quote from that at the end of what you play now as well. Okay, so this is an interview with uh, Jenny
1: Simpson, the former world champion in the 1500 meters i think in 2011 and uh, she spoke very strongly about her feelings about the salazar case let's see um get
0: him out that's my reaction you cheat you get banned i don't believe our lifetime bans i wish it was longer
1: um don't cheat Did you sort of did you think i mean there's been allegations but nothing was you know no sanctions handed down until this week i mean what were your thoughts about him
0: before were you skeptical did you think he should have been gone before
1: I mean, anybody that knows any about this sport knows that there's a black shadow, black cloud, whatever the analogy you want to make, over that group. And so, why anyone chooses to be a part of that group, I have no idea. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, anyone that's shocked isn't involved in the sport. Well, there we go. I mean, that's that's fairly definitive thoughts from Jenny Simpson saying yep. that
0: you know she wants him out. He was he was, a, he was a, in a way a cancer for the sport, so she feels very strongly about that. Yeah, she's been so impressive. That's one of three interviews that she's done. Uh, that was after the first round of the fifteen hundred. She was then asked yesterday after the semi final about the the comments made by a teammate of hers, Craig Engels, who's in the fifteen hundred semis for the men. Uh, he basically said Jenny's tarnishing everyone's reputation. And again, respect to Carl, because he said, "Sorry, Craig, who's tarnishing the reputation? Is it not Salazar? Yeah. By doing what he's done, he's the one who's tarnishing reputations, not not Jenny Simpson for voicing her opinions. And then she subsequently has also said that she thinks that now that the cloud has become a conviction because she alludes to this cloud that's been over these athletes for a long time. And that's absolutely true. And the thing she says at the end there is that anyone who knows anything about this wouldn't be shocked. Again, it's like Willis, the athletes know, they know, and they're not reacting like this because of carnitine and a testosterone experiment. There's much more, they know it. And she's now saying that they should investigate those other athletes. And I I hope that that's what's happened from this. And then just a last point on that was, a mate of mine sent me a quote, Barney Rene, Rene, I think, from The Guardian, put a sort of tongue-in-cheek quote. says, a uh, tweet, what seems really admirable to me is that none of Salazar's star athletes have seemed cross or denounced him for trashing their own entirely unrelated achievements or reputations. Great restraint. Because imagine you're clean and you've worked for 10 years, you've picked up a couple of Olympic medals and all you've ever done is blood, sweat and tears, not blood, just sweat and tears, no one, no one else's <laughs> blood, and maybe vitamins. And now this happens. Everyone who's ever been coached by Salazar is now under more of a cloud than ever before. Yeah. I would be furious. I'd be absolutely pissed off. Yet nobody has come out and said, "Hang on, this is ridiculous. I am furious with sales. How could you do this to me?
1: Yeah.
0: What's going on there? Is that is that a murder? You know, the classic code of silence that everyone obeys. That's the, that's the cycling sort of code the, of silence we talk about a lot. A, it's isn't it? the mafia code of silence yeah. that's yeah. then used in cycling. And is it is that the same thing? Yeah. Is it is it just loyalty? Yeah." Is it some sort of weird Stockholm syndrome where you, you, you sympathize with your captor or your, I, I don't know, I, I suspect that's probably quite complex. I'm not going to judge Craig Engels for saying I trust Alberta and so on because they're, they're invested, but they're yeah. also massively compromised by their choices.
1: And, and in a way he's kind of a i mean sorry to overuse the analogy but he's a kind of a godfather in in american athletics purely because he was a multiple three-time new york marathon champion three years in a row i think it was 1982 um and he gained this notoriety as this like guy that could take on the east africans he won the Comrades marathon in south africa here in at the age it's in 1994 after going through lots of different dips so he see, so he had this kind of he's got this aura around him that he was one of the best in the world therefore he should be the right person to coach the best American athlete. So you can understand this loyalty to him because he was a, one of the few to stand up against this East African revolution in, in running.
0: Yeah, and I was chatting with David Epstein, who was one of the journalists who first broke the story. So, in 20, so just for people who don't know the timeline, the rumors and the questions and the doubts over Salazar have circulated for years, ever since he even began the Nike Ogan Project. Mary Slaney failed a testosterone test and he was coaching her. So, that's right. So the, the, was it goes way back. Eh? 94,
1: 95. Yeah,
0: that's right. And now in this USADA report, by the way, Salazar admitted that he was using testosterone in 1991 while he was still active. So you can see how far back this goes. But from the perspective of what we know now, 2015 was the watershed because a group of journalists, Mark Daly from the BBC, David Epstein was one of them. They... Got wind of whistleblowers. Classic anti-doping or doping exposure comes from whistleblowers. Steve Magnus was the assistant coach with Salazar in in Oregon when you yeah up in at n p and he was deeply uncomfortable having watched the men's 10,000 in 2012. Farrow wins it, Rupp is second, and he says this just doesn't sit with me. He called it one of the most disheartening days of his life. Yeah. And as a consequence, contacted USADA and that kind of starts the process. And over the course of the next two or three years, more and more people are contacted, there's an investigation going on that we didn't know about. 2015, the media writes this, David Epstein's one of them. So that's to preface his involvement. And he was saying to me that most people don't appreciate that Salazar is still one of the biggest names and most recognized faces and names in US track and field. Yep. Second only in his words to Carl Lewis. And that's why it is like the Lance Armstrong thing because it's one of the biggest names who can possibly go down. And to get a four-year ban, that's a massive deal.
1: Because yeah.
0: getting these things over the line is not easy. It's gone through basically the US Anti-Doping Agency's re- investigation and then to arbitration because they charged him in 2017. And then for the next two years, there are a series of hearings and interviews and eventually you hit with the most severe ban you can get four years for a first offense. Yeah, It's a big yeah. deal. Can we talk a little bit about
1: what the transgressions are, the the list of allegations, because I think it's important to kind of break each of those down and to to kind of get an an idea that the defense of what he's talking about, uh, sometimes it feels like it can hold some water. But in reality, if you dig a little bit deeper down, that's why you can understand why some athletes are supporting him Um, And some and most are going, well, thank goodness, this has been caught out now. So us just
0: delve a little bit deeper into what those allegations are. Yeah, and this is where this is where now you start saying, okay, we if you if you if you're a person who wants to stick purely to the facts, then this is an anticlimax. And Scott Fowble is a marathon runner from the US. And again, for listeners, go and look up his Twitter because he posted some thoughts on this. And he used the analogy, it feels like Al Capone for tax evasion when you may, you think that there's a lot more to it. The three charges that he's eventually found guilty of are, number one, administering a prohibited method. And specifically there, he was giving, well, they didn't manage to pin it on he was giving athletes, but he was testing out the infusions of carnitine. Carnitine is not banned itself, it's a supplement you can go into the pharmacy, you can get it and you can take it. It's advertised as helping with weight loss and endurance because carnitine is a molecule that helps your body use fat better. Okay. The problem is, and there's some research on this, I was just looking at it this morning, is they found that it's not effective as a supplement because it just doesn't get the, the levels high enough in the body. So Salazar from the reports was impatient and he wanted a big a boost in this stuff. So he said, right, I'm going to inject it. But then... You're only allowed fifty mils every six hours. Not yeah. enough. So he said, "Forget it. I'm going a liter over four hours." And then later on, he tried a liter within one hour, allegedly. And this was all on Magnus. So this comes a lot from Steve Magnus's testimony. So yeah. that's that's using a, a legal substance, but using an, a prohibited method. Guilty. Okay. Does that make sense? I Makes mean, sense. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, anybody can take that medication, but if you start using it in
1: excess it's
0: then seen as a prohibitive substance? In excess via this method. Okay. Because normally you would take it as a pill, but it's the infusion beyond 50 mils every six hours. And they were, I mean, if you, Magnus is saying a liter within an hour, it's like, that's straight to the top floor, right? Yeah. So that that's, and, and one interesting thing about that is that they were trying this stuff out and so, so the benefit of that would be? Improved endurance. So, and potentially weight loss, but... There's a there's an account that Steve Magnus has told where he, he gets this infusion and he goes out and running and he calls the results almost unbelievable. Uh, and then interestingly enough, Salazar emails one Lance Armstrong and says, Lance, you've sh- you got to see this. It's amazing. So there was this connection. I mean, it's all it's all linked. They're all linked through <laughs> Nike, obviously. So, so that's Lance's <laughs> guest appearance in this case, which is quite funny because it's it's funny because everyone's always like, you think about doping, Lance is the full guy, and sure enough, he's making a cameo <laughs> unwittingly in this one. So that was yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. So that's the that was the problem there. The second charge was tampering with the doping process, which is kind of linked to the first. So we've spoken about the carnitine. Salazar knew that what he was doing was not legal, but he was telling the athletes not to worry, I've cleared this with USADA, and he hadn't. So effectively, he was, he was misleading his athletes, and that's, that, that's treated as a charge of tampering with the doping process. How would he have done that potentially? Well, the athletes were saying, like, what, is this legit? Are we okay to do this? And he's saying, no, absolutely, it's fine, because he just wants them to, to comply and go along with it. So he's, he's misleading them about anti-doping regulation and permissions and so forth. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the third one, which is a really interesting one, and that's what Craig Engels referred to in his uh, his interview in Doha, is he was found guilty of trafficking testosterone, basically using testosterone and administering it off label for illegal uses. And the story here, I'll give you Salazar's version of it first, is that they were very paranoid that someone was going to sabotage their athletes by rubbing testosterone into them and causing them to fail a test. Now, that's not without precedent because Justin Gatlin maintains that his testosterone doping positive was the result of a masseur rubbing testosterone into his legs during a massage. Mm -hmm. And in 2009, there's a story about Galen Rupp um, feels this hand and it's got some sort of gel stuff on it, and he's really paranoid. It turns out to be the same dude as Gatlin alleges. <laughs> so, this is, this is same where bloke. this thing goes. Yeah, and there's this, a guy walking around with testosterone in his hands, then. It's like a Netflix thing. Yeah, ah, it's yeah. a great story. And so they say, okay, we're really worried about this. And so Salazar comes up to working together with Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who's the co accused, co guilty with him now eventually, of they come up with this plan to run an experiment where they're going to test various amounts of testosterone on Salazar's sons. So they devised this protocol, like this is now backyard science, basically, <laughs> where they're going to give Salazar's sons a couple of dollops of cream, they're going to make him run 20 minutes in hot conditions, they're going to test him. Did he fail the test? Yes or no? So they basically, and then we're going to try it with three, then we're going to try it with four, should we go to six? And they, they run a series of experiments. I mean, he plays basketball the one day I was reading in the report. And they are communicating and this is where the Nike CEO gets named because he receives an email from this doctor saying, Listen, we've tried it with three, the value in the doping control was this so we're looking good, it doesn't trigger it, and so on. So basically, they're, <clears throat> they're doing this, allegedly, to put their minds at ease that no one can sabotage them. In the event that they fail a test in the future, they're going to say, Oh, it was sabotage. Okay, Now that yeah, I, I find that preposterous. I mean, there are so many other ways a paranoid person would act to. Well, well, well for instance, is it possible to get a, t- a positive
1: testosterone test, as Gatlin suggests, by Masseur massaging that into your legs? I mean, yeah, it, I'm sure it is. Is. Is, that, is that
0: feasible? Well, that's how you take testosterone yeah. sometimes. So it's one sort of those of biofeasible um, things. One of the methods of using testosterone as a drug is to take it as a cream and rub it in. So, yes. I don't know how much it takes. That's <laughs> that's what they were asking. Yeah. Eustace's um, contention is obvious. They're saying, "Hang on, you're saying this is for sabotage, but this could just as easily be you guys running tests to see how much you can get away with, and then using it for doping." And I want to make the point: it could be both. Yeah. Could be both, right? Because you're going to find both things out. But there was some suggestion that that is why he was doing it: is because they were trying to push the limits of legality. Yeah, he's always on the edge. You know, like once you cross over into the grey. You want to get as close to the black as you possibly can. But how do you know when you're in the black? Yeah. Unless you test it. And so he's testing it on his son. This is Usada's argument. He's testing it on his sons uh, because they who cares? They're not going to get him banned. Well, <laughs> they did. Uh, but they're not going to be banned in competition. Yeah. And he wants to work out how far he can go. Yeah. And so that eventually they find him guilty of of running those experiments without the permission of Usada. I mean, there's no ethical... I mean, ethics doesn't even factor into it, they just yeah. do what do what it takes. And so those are the three things that he eventually gets the four year ban for the what's interesting, and I find it odd, and David has found it odd, we were discussing it is in the actual decision, they, they make this argument that he's acted in the best interest of the athletes that he's tried really hard to remain within the rules and so forth. But then it still hits him with four years. Yeah. So the, the wording of the decision and the outcome of the decision for me don't align. But I think people must understand that this is arbitration, yeah. Um, and arbitration, by its nature, seeks to find consolation or reconciliation, conciliatory findings. I was involved in arbitration at the beginning of the year because of the Casta Semenya thing, and I was amazed at how civil it was. Yeah, um, it's not adversarial. I mean, ours ended up being because it's about—it's literally about someone's identity: are yeah. you a man or a woman? It's a big deal. Yeah, but it's—it's quite a—it's quite a. It's quite a civil open discussion platform where all they're trying to actually do is find the truth and then reach some sort of compromise yeah and so i think the language reflects that but the point i'm left with is that you usada started in 2015 and for two years did investigation and they came up with a 269 page report that concluded the same things as this panel have you read it all no, <laughs> no, uh, Just the salient I, skipped the legal, I skipped the legal stuff about yeah. jurisdiction and jurisprudence. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's my head. Um, and now this American Arbitration Association has done the same thing over two years and reached the same conclusions. And so Tygaard said that Salazar prioritizes performance well beyond the health of his athletes. And there's other examples of it. And now I think really all that remains is to see whether anyone takes this baton and runs with it, because if they do, there's a lot more, you know, yeah. the, the initial media reports included the thyroid stuff, they included the precision of massive doses of vitamin D, that could potentially cause cancer calcitonin, again, none of this illegal, but it's all part of this medicalization of sports, and this use of prescription drugs that I think is probably quite harmful. Let's just take a slight
1: step back and, and look at the history of the Nike Oregon project. Of course, it was something that started in 2001 when Salazar was approached by, by Nike to do this. And the idea was that they were basically going to produce American athletes that were going to be competitive with the East Africans. That was the premise of it. And I know that initially that the results weren't coming through as much as uh, as I think the Nike Oregon project and particularly Salazar were, were necessarily happy with and kind of suggests why they were pushing the limits on these things. But we, we saw an amazing performance from Mo Farah and Galenra, both athletes with um, um, Alper de Salazar winning the 10,000 in London in 2012. And it, and it showed that, they were, that, that he was producing the results. So there was quite a lot of pressure on him to potentially do something that I suppose physiologically is almost seems impossible because you're taking on... Sort of super athletes from East Africa and trying to mold them into something just by training methods. So yeah. there was probably that that real pressure to perform and a commercial pressure as well coming from Nike. There I would mean, have been.
0: It's hypothesis, I, I admit, but, but it's a it's yeah. a classic story, and it's not unique to sport. Think about business. Why do businesses do corrupt things, white collar crime, and fraudulent accounting? Is because someone is on the hook to produce profits, and they can't. And then they get pressurized from the top and they say, well, by any means necessary, I have to deliver the goals that have been set for me. And if you don't, if you don't create a culture of absolutely zero tolerance towards cheating or dishonesty or anything that lacks integrity, then you get this, in my opinion, like there's a creep of standards. Yeah. And you're doing things that you think are innovative. You're using underwater treadmills and anti-gravity treadmills and altitude tents, all these things that are legal. And most people would say, wow, look at this uh, innovative environment. But then that stuff becomes a little bit more malicious and it starts to become a little bit more gray. And eventually you start looking over the precipice into the black. And then you discover that the athletes you're racing against might be doping. Right? This is the story of Lance Armstrong, not to invoke the same guy's name. This is the story of countless cyclists who've discovered this in that sport. This is probably the story of many of the Kenyan runners who've doped, is that they get to a point where they've got to make a choice. Mm. I, I dope, I follow the advice of my coach or my doctor, or I quit. And what are they quitting for? Like what life? So I, th- I think it's a classic pattern, if that's what's happened here. Mm. Mm. And yeah, he w- he's, he's always been known as innovative. Mm. Mm. But he's also always been known for being pretty sketchy. And by any means necessary. 1999, he gave a talk, I think it was at Duke and he said it's impossible to be in the top five unless you use EPO. Now, That was arguably the case then. Um, Skeptics would say it's still the case now, but the difference is that between then and now they developed a test for EPO. So in theory, the picture should be better. But there was this, I think in general in sport, there's a belief that you've got to do as much as you can, otherwise you'll be left behind. And where do you draw the line on as much as you can? Because the moment you do, it's not as much as you can. (laughs) So you alluded to the fact that this is maybe the start
1: of something uh, going forward. Like, are you suggesting then that this is just the tip of an iceberg in terms of athletics around the world or around American athletics? I mean, when you say, you talked a little bit about uh, when we look building up to this podcast around how the media handled this situation is that media people within the sport of athletics have come out now saying, well, well, yeah, we knew this was coming. So why didn't anybody bring it up until 2015 when, people outside of the media within athletics kind of brought it up. Is its is it, what is potentially going to happen now in the, in, in the sport?
0: I think it depends on the appetite of the media to go further. Um, so, for instance, in the British media, their angle on this, well, their two angles on this have been how does it affect Mo Farah and how does it affect UK athletics? Because UK athletics used Salazar as a consultant, and he was really the coach who delivered them their golden egg. Yeah. Farah won two doubles uh, at the Olympics, the 5 and 10 twice, under Salazar's coaching, having been before that a good to middling athlete. So the transformation of Farah has always been suspicious. And once Salazar was named as being the, the, the well, in the, in the media reports of 2015, UK Athletics said, we have to investigate this. Magnus, the aforementioned whistleblower, has said that they called him up for 45 minutes and did what was really just a cursory interview. Yeah, And then they approved Salazar's continued coaching of Farah for two years longer. It was only in 2017 that Farah left Salazar. So the point is that they have some serious questions to answer. There's a quote by the head of the Athletics saying, Salazar's a genius, we absolutely will stay working with the guy. Well, history has made those words look unbelievably reckless. And he, and he was at one point sort of IAAF coach of the year after
1: 2012. Yeah, he would have and, been. And he was
0: he was lauded around the world as, as the most groundbreaking coach in, in the sport. Massively, massively. Yeah. Though, again, I think many people always had questions, but they're a cloud. So you can't withhold awards based on suspicion. Yeah. I mean, every, the, I think, again, people in the sport knew, but fine. By 2015, they knew details. And then they had to make a choice. They had to say, is Steve Magnus lying? Is Cara Gacha? Is Adam Gacha lying? Is Fleshman lying? Is Ritzenheim lying? I mean, how many people had to lie for that thing to be false? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's ridiculous that all of them made it up. But so at that point people had to make a call and some people chose to double down. He's yeah. a genius. They stayed with him for another few years. And now all of a sudden, and that's why this is this is, it's not funny, but... People are now saying, oh, now we know this. We, we've known this all along. But people made a call, despite knowing this, to stick with it. Because- but, but because this polarizing effect that
1: he's had on this discussion is listening to the accusations against him, you can understand why there was some, and I hesitate to say this, some justification for what he was doing. So if he's pushing the limits on testosterone with non-athletes, you know, you could say, okay, well, that's wrong. Morally, it's wrong. Um, we found out now that obviously from a legal standpoint in terms mm. of IAAF and you saw it's wrong. But there, there is that sort of gray area with him trying to just be better and, and not, you know, doing the traditional steroids and EPO. He was literally doing stuff that maybe was on that line, which kind of goes again. what goes with what a lot of the athletes are saying. It yeah. just, he just overstepped the mark. I think Paul Radcliffe's on record is saying he overstepped the mark, um, which is what I think a lot of athletes feel about this yeah
0: the, the official panel decision uh, uses language. It's not exactly like that. I'll see if I can find the wording, but it's very similar to overstep the mark. He erred on the side of some I, f- I forget exactly. I'll see if yeah. I can find it in a moment. but but that and, and you know when we did our when we did our drugs in sport podcast, and in fact before that I think no after that we had done a cheating in sport podcast. And it's funny because you keep coming back to where's the gray area. (laughs) And I see the world in a bit more black and white. But I've started to realize actually that you are onto – because fundamental, the thing that this all revolves around is what's cheating. I mean, that's what it is. And I reckon if you're an athlete and you hire the coach, there's almost an expectation that this coach is going to do with me what it takes for me to win. But again, that that immediately puts me in the gray areas. But I'm also trusting that I've got some sort of – moral compass to say where do I want to stop but it's not a legal compass yeah it's a moral one now again listeners go and find cheating in sport podcast and our drugs in sport podcast because the two of those is fundamentally what I'm about to talk about now is the, the the current doping practice in sport is all about prescription drugs and medication in a sense it always has been because EPO is a prescription drug. It wasn't made for athletics. It was made to treat people with renal failure. Testosterone was made for people who have hypogonadism and low testosterone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com
1: slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: So every drug, in a sense, is a prescription drug. But I think where we are now in 2019 is the testing has become sophisticated enough to catch the basic stuff. And so the athletes and their coaches and the doctors have adapted. To quote an anti-doping expert called Michael Ashenden, anti-doping shed its skin and it took on a new guise. And that new guise is prescription drugs. So the use of thyroid hormone for people who don't need it, the use of asthma meds for people who don't need it, the use of testosterone, Salazar tried to get an exemption to use testosterone on the basis of having low levels himself. So I I think cortisone for athletes who don't need it, Get bronchitis so that you can get this powerful drug. Yeah. So that's, that's where it is. But again, none of that stuff's banned. So again, talking to some journalists over the last five or six years, they keep coming back to this point like, but he's not doing anything illegal. But it's hugely unethical. It's actually illegal in society for a coach to be giving athletes medical drugs. That's a, that's a violation of prescription medication law but not anti-doping regulations. So, so yes, but for me, it still sounds a lot like, a, like when asked about it, if you can't tell people, then you know it's wrong. Yeah. So, so when they asked Salazar about thyroid hormone and cortisone and all that sort of stuff, and he keeps saying, no, we don't use any of that. Well, why are you denying it? Yeah, Because you know you just know fundamentally that this is not right. Which is what which is what Simpson is saying, that why exactly. would any athlete go there knowing what the reputation
1: of Salazar was? But I, I I guess I mean I'm not trying to labor the point, but to some extent there there is this idea that if you're at if if sport if running in athletics is your only mean of income and your only way of progressing in life and you see that a guy like Salazar is I coach of the year producing results like Ganon Rapp and Amo Farah, um, you know, there's you're gonna almost take a risk. I would, I would take a risk if I if I thought that if it's not absolute value, this guy's going to turn me into somebody who can really be a superstar athlete and I could win Olympic gold because I'm now in tenth place. It must
0: be an extremely tempting thing for for athletes to well, think about. Must be hugely tempting. And I've also said I'm glad I didn't have the talent because talent puts you in a position of having to choose. And I'm lucky I never had to make the choice. <laughs> Same thing, but like the, the the best athletes at some point are faced with that choice and okay, I'm not gonna begrudge the person going there, but I also, I think Jenny Simpson's right, is when there's that much around it, it's, it's just, and he's not, the problem is you're falling pro to marketing a little bit there because they're, <laughs> not, they're not all that, you know? There are so many good, honest people in sport, I think, that I don't think you have to go there. And I, I, I completely understand. I cannot now watch athletes, and I suppose we'll get on to the good news to end off at, about Doha, well, yeah. it's not even good news anymore, really. But we'll get on to some performances. But when you see an amazing performance, who's her coach? Salazar. Ooh, okay, that's not so cool.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, again, last time of a hat tip for Cahill Dennehy. He says, truth is, the vast majority of athletes, coaches, and agents had long known what Salazar was up to and had waited for this day. A cynical coach who was long lauded as a genius was found to be as flawed as everyone believed. The fairy tale Salazar told us was just that. He won't be missed. In an earlier paragraph, he says, in Doha this week, there's been much anger but also celebration. Now, when your reputation is that toxic, Jenny Simpson is right, in my opinion. Yeah, And I, I cannot understand why athletes do not come out and say, I am absolutely livid pissed off at my reputation being tarnished because this guy was stuffing around with testosterone and carnitine and doing all these illegal things. Why don't they it's just and again tip of the iceberg in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just a big thank you to those that are following us on YouTube at the moment. Uh, we're trying out a new system today. So we got a couple of comments from people talking specifically for, about the uh, uh, Ken and Lisa Bicilli run in Berlin. Matt Kemp saying Formula One of marathon running. I suppose it's quite a good comment because I think if you think about all the different technological advantages in Formula One, it all comes down to the car. So at what point does running just come down to the shoe? <laughs> I suppose that's a, a controversial topic. Well, but, so, so
0: on that, the, yeah. the thing there is if the difference between the top 10 is 1.5% and the difference made by the shoe is 1.6% then the result has no integrity yeah because 10th to 1st could be determined by something other than the runner yeah and that is the problem
1: and then a couple of comments at uh, jordan mansfield saying the next generation doctors will be hard to expose and i suppose that's the big danger and i think that's one of the things that i, I guess media and people like ourselves and yourself in the sports science space it, it is one of the biggest jobs going forward in the sport of athletics is that everything is going to become going to become more and more sophisticated as we go because it's not going to be something that is is going to get any easier to detect athletes are always going to cheat as we've discussed on our cheating podcast. it's always something mm. that
0: people are going to be wanting to do yeah so we've been talking sellers are sellers are all the time that the doctor who prescribed all this stuff so for me the behind the three things we listed is what he was guilty of the the I think a bigger issue is that he had a a corrupt doctor who was willing to do these things also and that Dr. Brown's not the only one in the in the ProPublica Epstein reporting and so forth they name another one who is now no longer alive but was also responsible Salazar would send them to him and send his athletes to these doctors and say don't ask questions just take what he gives you and everything will be fine And so there was this very loose medical process. And so banning the doctor, and presumably the US Medical Association will act on this also. And I guess the doctor runs the risk of losing a license. That's a very powerful message. So I think it would hopefully make some doctors think twice about doing it, because think about how much they've got to lose their license. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that this is very good because every time an athlete gets done in court, people say, but where did he get the drugs? Yeah. Who's facilitating this? What about the entourage, the support staff? Who's enabling doping? And so now we get that. And one of the <laughs> one of the most disingenuous takes for a few different reasons was Paula Radcliffe, who who in an interview absolutely faceplanted it on on the motives of the USADA she, 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 she tried to, yeah, go and watch it. I can't even do it justice. But then in subsequent tweets, she said that she's frustrated and disappointed that they're spending all this time and resources going after the coach, They should yeah. go after the athletes. Well, no, every time an athlete gets done, you take, go for the coach. Now the coach gets done, you say, no, go for the athletes. Which is it? It's gotta be one or the other, or maybe it should be, no, it's, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It should be both. And this is, this is a big breakthrough because I think it sends a good message. And, uh, yeah, I again, it's celebrated. It. it shouldn't be condemned. Yeah.
1: Right, so we've discussed the good and the bad of athletics. Let's uh, wrap up uh, the podcast today with a little bit of a look at the World Athletic Championships. We did a preview to the World Athletic Championships uh, just over a week ago talking a little bit about some of the advancements and particularly around the heat issue um, that was a big talking point and we hoped that the heat was going to be the only talking point at the World Athletic Championships and, as Ross uh, prophetically said, um, it, it hasn't been the, the, the talking point. I suspect that uh, Alberta Salazar has been that. But the heat, they've got the they have got the air conditioning system in the stadium, which seems to have made a difference from what I've read uh, online. They've reduced the temperatures down a bit. All the events have been later. But probably the key event has always been the marathons. And so far, now we know we've got the men's marathon still coming up, but the women's marathon, a lot of criticism about the heat and a lot of criticism aimed at the IAAF and the organisers not that the organizer got anything to do with the heat, but the believe awarding the, an event like the Olympics, like the World Championships to Doha and saying that that heat is just unfair for athletes. But is it really? I mean, is it not just live with the circumstances?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I, I saw much of the feedback. People were saying it's inhumane and so forth and <laughs> shouldn't ever be done again and no one considers the athlete. And I suppose when you look at it, they had 40 finishes. And sixty-nine, I think, uh entrants. One didn't start, made the call before to say this is maybe maybe they were injured. And then forty one percent of the field dropped out. Now that's yeah. obviously not a good look, but you can understand why. If you're coming fifteenth after ten K and you've already lost a minute to the leaders, what, what are you running for? You're gonna run a two forty eight to come twentieth? No. Yeah. So but 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 I also I also like the fact that it throws a new challenge, you know. I think you see these optimized conditions all the time um, for marathons. Perfect races, perfectly flat courses, throw a set of pacemakers in there and just make everything exactly how they need it to be. But actually, it's meant to be a test. Yeah. And it's meant to be about how well you manage your body. That's what it is. So if you are the one athlete who's intelligent enough to prepare for it, to start off conservatively, to do the pre-cooling stuff that we have seen athletes do, to manage your pace in the first 15 to 25 kilometers and come through strongly and get a bronze medal then good for you yeah if you're not and you go off and try and run a 228 on a 236 day then you deserve to bail at 30ks in my opinion so yeah. i don't think it's i don't think it's that bad to be honest with you i I mean, ideally, you don't want to see athletes collapsing and and, and so forth in, in these races. And but potentially, you get those athletes that are not necessarily the fastest exactly. winning the race, which exactly. is, gives more people more chance, I suppose. Because if you set it up as a perfect course on a cool day and you have six athletes who can run 224 or faster, that athlete who can run 231 has no chance of a medal, mm-hmm. none. But if you set it up on I a warm day… I
1: athletes from Norway.
0: Yeah, any, yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you set it up in a way that actually those 224 people are going to run 236, that 231 has a chance because if they do everything that it takes in the six months before. So I look at this Doha race and the men's marathons this weekend, and I think we'll see the same thing. And I'd be saying, if I'm a 231, 232 athlete woman, on the women's side, I'm looking at Tokyo and saying, here's a real chance. Because be, if I can be the person least affected, I'm going to potentially get an Olympic medal. And what do I need to do to, to do that? I think it I think it adds a layer of intrigue, you know? Yeah. I get yeah. I get that you don't want it all the time, but for me, some of the most exciting marathons have been these ones that are really affected and they're unpredictable as a as a result. On the track, I think the heat hasn't been an issue. Because yeah. you, you saw a thirty seventeen from Hassan, saw twelve fifty eight when the men's five. That's not happening at 40, 35 degrees Celsius, so the heat there's been fine, but so the air conditioning system has worked. It's certainly done it enough like to has, make legitimate dresses. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have been a problem. But again, it yeah. Now, this isn't this isn't really
1: a science question, but I guess the biggest controversy around the actual event itself has been the crowd support. Yeah, and I I've, I never can quite understand this, but particularly on the men's hundred meter final, which I think was last Sunday. Before there was a track event, I think it was a distance event. Currently, you'll probably know which one it was, but there was a good crowd for that. But as soon as the yes. 100 meters started, the crowd left. Mm. And ironically, if you go to any World Championships, Olympic Games, it's always the biggest crowd for the 100 meters. It's the most glamorous event uh, uh, on the on the on the whole week of athletics. Um, I, I don't even I'm trying to even guess why would everybody leave before the 100 meter final?
0: I, is it logistics? Yeah. I've noticed the same thing. By the t- and by the time they cross the finish line, I mean. Coleman took nine point, what was it, eight, seven, nine point seven six seconds, or whatever. Within nine point seven six seconds of the race finishing, <laughs> everyone was heading for the exits. So they do these victory laps and they're waving at empty seats. It's actually it's it was we spoke in our preview about how athletics is fighting for legitimacy yeah. and relevance and popularity. And then you see that. Oh, it's such yeah. a bad such but a bad But Seb
1: who heads up the RWF, has come out in defense of the decision because he's saying that as much as the criticism and he's been he's had a go at the media about this and particularly the BBC uh, talking about the low crowd saying that if you're going to develop the sport of athletics, you need to be able to take it to different regions. And yes, the crowds might be not big here, um, but it's taking the sport to another part of the world and hopefully that will grow it in the long term.
0: Uh, if, 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 if Qatar has even a 2% growth in interest in athletics after this, I'll be extremely surprised. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> The the reason that the distance ra- so to come back to that, that was a woman's ten thousand was just before the men's one hundred, and every single distance race so far has been the loudest in the stadium, and I think it's because the population of Qatar is made up of a lot of immigrant workers from yeah. countries like uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, and so on. And so there's this. If you watch it now, the listeners over the next few days, you'll see at where the fifteen hundred starts. So that's one hundred meters into the into the lap on that first bend. There's a section there that looks like it's basically been occupied by the distance running fans, yeah. and you see Ethiopian flags, Qatari flags, Kenyan flags, and the biggest cheers are coming from there. And I reckon they come to watch those races and then they leave. Now the reason I bring that up is because <laughs> is because that they are now the most popular events at these World Champs, the distance events. Yes, and that's the one thing that I've left took out of the program of Diamond Leagues. So and maybe they
1: should run a five thousand then. For the Diamond League, just in Qatar, and they have the Qatar event as well, the only event with the five thousand. I think 000. they've got
0: to think about that. Like you got to, you got to say, you got to know your audience. So if you go to Eugene and you have that meet there, that's a distance running mecca. That meeting should have a fifteen, a five, and a ten. It's it's pre-land, you know, pre Yeah. The the Rabat Diamond League in Morocco is a distance mecca. Qatar should be a distance one, and then and then do one or two in Europe, and they let the Europeans watch the. They should have a multi sport I mean, the, heptath- the, the decathlon yesterday was really good. The heptathlon was a little bit one-sided, but the decathlon came down to three medals up for grabs in the final race. Yeah. So, so there's. I, I think they could layer it in a, in a more intelligent way than saying the 5,000 is boring. The best event of Doha so far has been the 5,000 in terms of entertainment.
1: <laughs> Just other highlights?
0: Well, Hassan, stuck out for you so far? Hassan's 10,000 was astonishing. She ran the last... 1,500 in 3.59, yeah. which is the 11th fastest 1,500 of the year. At the back end of a 10,000 that ended up being a 30.17, at the back end of that was a 5,000 in 1,443. It's insane. She could, she could win the 5,000 with the second half of a 10. Yeah, She's not in the 5, she's running the 15. So yeah. that is the athlete who will be go down as the most dominant of these world champs. I'd be hugely surprised if she loses the 15. But of course,
1: we need to say who her coach is.
0: Exactly. So we we and
1: this is the problem. I mean, we, we talk yeah. about that performance and how good it's been, and now all of a sudden there's a shadow hanging over her. And if that performance is legitimate, even if it is legitimate, and we hope it is, it's it's tainted
0: because of these allegations. People are going to start looking and saying, "Well, is it, is it true?" Exactly. I mean, even before there, like, because this was on Saturday, I guess the report comes out and the ban is on Wednesday. So okay, if you the dust has settled on that performance, but even watching it, you're like, Oh, man, I, uh, is this legit? Can I can I trust what I'm seeing here? A 359 yeah. at the end of a 10,000? Of it's unbelievable. It's the equivalent, by the way, of running a, a 331 for a man at the end of a 10k. Yeah. And I went back in history, and I try to find some examples. It's it's more difficult than you'd think. But in 2017, the last 1500 of a 5K was 3:43. Yeah. So she's she's so much faster than anyone has closed these races. And you could get technical and say she's running her half marathon pace up to 5K, and then it gets quicker. And so it's yeah.
1: it's,
0: it's obviously not impossible because someone someone did it. But um, yeah. I, it's and then of course now now everyone's saying she hasn't given an interview since. Yeah. Every time in the mixed zone after a race, straight past them because. What, what's the first question they're going to ask? Yeah. So that's the, that's the problem. And again, if I'm Hassan, I would stop at that mic and I would say, you know what? Like, I joined after this this investigation. i am only been there for two years. I am so pissed off at Alberto Salazar right now, and I hope he never comes back to the sport. That would be for me the response that I'd say, good for you, CFAN. Yeah. But she's not giving it.
1: Yeah. Other highlights, of course, the men's 100 we've just touched on it. Christian Kommen dominating as you predicted he would, mm. but Justin Gatlin. Thirty-seven years old, getting the silver medal—a controversial character, but nevertheless a good story. I mean, we talked about thirty-seven-year-olds doing well this year. uh, Yeah, and he
0: he delivered in the final. Like I think maybe better than than certainly I expected. He only squeaked into that final. Actually, nearly missed qualification. Um, and I predicted that he'd struggle to meddle, but then he raised it when it mattered. You know, maybe that's experience. And we both had a side bet on Akani Simbini, the South African, who
1: I said might get a silver and you said bronze and he ended up being in fourth. So yeah. a little bit disappointing from him,
0: but yeah. uh, nevertheless, quite a consistent performance. Yeah, because I feel like it was a soft hundred. Um, I looked at the time. Coleman's time was quick, but second and third were not lights out fast you know so it felt like a softer year than in the past so that was a medal that he, he might regret not winning uh the women's hundred was not soft i mean shelly and fraser price in ten seven zero 0 was unreal the semi final was 10 8 is crazy mm. again a little bit one-sided uh it's not a great race but an unbelievable performance the women's 400 last night was one in the third fastest time in history i don't know if you saw that by NASA from Bahrain, which was a big surprise. She mm. beat Weibo, Miller Webo, so that was uh, eye opening. Um, but for me, the distance events have been the most fun. Yeah. You know, the, I think I think that the IWF solution to the Diamond League issue should have been to not get rid of the five, but just get rid of the pacemakers. Mm. Because the race, yeah, because it's yeah. so intriguing when you actually yeah. give people the responsibility of taking it on. Because the Diamond League. The, Let's be let's be clear. I love distance running, but the Diamond League 5Ks are dull. Yeah. Because for three laps, they run in single file behind a pace setter, 3Ks. Then for the fourth k everyone slows down and jogs and saves themselves for the finish. And then the last 600 meters is a furious sprint, and it's exciting. It's yeah. boring. Yeah. This 5K in Doha was interesting because you had Ingebrigtsen, who's the 1500 meter guy. And if it's slow for the first 3Ks, he is... He's basically running his. He was fantastic to watch, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, and he was aggressive, and so that made it. But the Ethiopians knew that he was there, so they took it out hard in the beginning, and you could see Berega and Bekele and Ed Idris were pushing. Yeah, because they were aware of the threat. So there's all this intrigue going on, and yeah. then Ingebritsen comes to the party and he pushes, and they was sp- it was terrific. It was such a good. And, race. and
1: that's why I think if if there's if there's a way to end off on a positive note in this podcast. That is why Olympic Games and World Championships exactly. for me feel like the mm. most legitimate form of the sport because there is no pace setting. It's literally right. like the best athletes on the day will win. It's about competition, and that's what's important. And I think if we're watching the World Athletics Championships, and I think let's let's cast our minds slightly forward to where we are on in the in Tokyo next year. The, celebrate these these championships. Celebrate the Olympic Games because these are the one the one element of the sport which is not defined by a pace setting or kind of a commercial um, derivative.
0: Yeah, that's what I agree. Even marathons we're getting now. Berlin obviously kicked off the fall marathon season. We'll have Chicago next and New York. And then obviously in amongst all that, we've got this contrived sub-two attempt, which I can't. I'm interested to see how it goes as an experiment, but I'm not interested in it as as an athletic achievement because, A, I think it's massively tarnished by the shoes and all the other gimmicks that they throw at it. And so I don't think it says much about human performance. But, you know, like the race that I'm going to miss it because I fly back from Japan on the day that it's happening is the New York Marathon because they never have a pace setter. And so they come into Central Park and it becomes a race and there's hills and there's challenges and it's different that's what i think the sport needs more of in order to survive but someone along the line 20 years ago has decided that the stopwatch matters more than the contest yeah. and whoever that person is should be should be hung and
1: quartered and to be honest with you if you're watching and a fast time it makes no difference from a visual perspective whether somebody's running you can't tell 2 seconds a kilometer quicker you can't tell yeah, so exactly. i'd
0: prefer to see a race me no. too so i think that i i agree the the uh, the future of the sport is more more of the more of the kind of racing we've got in doha the distance races are tremendous i really enjoy them the sprints also because like they avoid each other during the year yeah and then finally you get to see this is the contest so there's always something there but i just yeah i mean i hope that they're not going to reconsider the 5k thing but there's a fix to it they didn't need to get rid of it they could have fixed it
1: so, a couple of comments from people on our YouTube live at the moment. And we do apologize if we didn't promote this massively ahead of time because we were trying some new tech. But a last comment from ALH359 saying, Co has to go. Maybe, Ross, we can kind of wrap up this podcast by giving <laughs> our opinion on that. Sebco, of course, a controversial character. He's, he's had a tough time in <laughs> the last couple of years. Is he doing good for athletics at the moment or is athletics
0: not good under Sebco's watch? Yeah, so Matt Lawton. Um, is a writer with the Times now, and he ran a piece a week before the World Champs where he spoke about Ko and how he's saved athletics and how it's been changed and so forth. And that that article didn't age well in a week. Yeah. Um, Let's just say from the South African perspective, Ko would definitely not be welcome here because people here blame him for pushing Semenya out of the sport. That's another debate altogether. I understand why he took the position he did. I don't agree with how they do it, but still... Um, I think when you look at empty seats and doping scandals around this world championships, there are some serious questions have to be asked. You know, earlier on, you asked me about where this goes next. And I I got sidetracked in my answer. And I was saying that the the English media have picked up two things. One is the Mo Farah angle. The other one is the UK athletics piece and what it means for the governance of athletics. And I guess this ties into that. Um, The the future will depend on whether they have an appetite to actually answer the questions. Yeah. Just today, there was an article by Matt Dickinson saying about the swoosh, the whoosh that you hear is Nike sweeping another scandal under the carpet. <laughs> okay, fine. Are you going to do anything? Like, who's going to who's going to pick it up and pursue it now? Because if they do, this will be the the tip of the iceberg. May yet expose the rest of the iceberg. Yeah. But who's who's got the appetite? So that's where I think it goes. But the, does Co, does Co go? I doubt no. Why, no, he won't go. Because athletics will be flush with money thanks to Qatar dollars, <laughs> yeah, and uh, they'll just ride it out, and and the next one will be in Eugene. Yeah. It'll be it'll be yeah. well attended, and everyone will forgotten about the the scandals of Doha, I reckon.
1: Yeah. Professor Rostock, I thank you much for your time today. We look forward to another couple of days of the World Athletic Championships. Uh, we'll be doing an interesting podcast, hopefully, with Justin Gatlin next week. And uh, we'll be able to give you some insights into what it's like to be at the very top end of uh, sprinting. But for now, that is us. We'll speak to you next time.
0: Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport podcast.